to the Metacast Crypto Corner, brought to you by Novik. I'm your host, Nick Ovori. Today, we talk about game economies in Web3. Uh, one of the exciting and interesting aspects about building in Web3 uh, is the notion of digital ownership, of actually owning the assets that you're playing with. But when we as an industry, up until this point at least, have been talking about digital ownership, play-to-own uh, terms in that, in that vein, we are generally talking about non-fungible tokens, uh, NFTs, which are unique in-game assets. Uh, there are lots of flavors of NFTs, cosmetic items like skins, battle passes, playable characters, land, venue ownership, geo-NFTs, clan membership. The list goes on, and there are actually a ton of really exciting and interesting uh, applications for NFTs in game design, and we're seeing new use cases on a daily basis. And we will come back to NFTs in a future episode uh, to talk about the innovation that's happening there. But today, we're talking about something that doesn't get talked about very much, uh, up at least up until this point. Today, we're talking about fungible tokens. So in other words, tokens that can be swapped one for one with another token. So this is your in-game currencies, essentially. Think of a dollar. It's exactly the same as another dollar. Gold coin, same as another gold coin. Gem for a gem. They have the same utility, the same value. No one gem or no one coin is different to another, and you can just swap them interchangeably. And the reason we're talking about this today is because one of the big promises that we've heard about Web3 is the notion that players can retain some element of economic value for all of the effort and energy that they put into to gameplay. Um, the analogy that I like, which is not a perfect analogy, but um, the analogy that I, I like to use is the old physical model of buying a new game, You know, whether it's a cartridge or a disc or whatever from GameStop, you play it until you're done, and then you sell it to a friend, you sell it back to the store, you put it up on eBay, and you retain some fraction of the original purchase price. Um, you're not playing the game to earn, but because you own the game, you actually physically have the game, you are retaining some residual economic value. But with the current paradigm in Web 2, you know, digital downloads, DRM, that notion of player-retained economic interest is completely out the window. Uh, the developers and the platforms on which the games are played are retaining 100% of the economic value of that game. And that brings us to today's topic. You know, Web 3 changes this equation, at least in theory. And it allows the players who are playing the games to retain some level of economic interest in their digital assets, both the non-fungible ones, which are the unique assets that we talked about and we generally talk about as an industry, but also the fungible ones, the in-game currencies uh, that they're accumulating through you know, gameplay, time spent in the game, trading with other players, winning tournaments, things like that. But the big question that we're talking about today is just because you can open up your economy doesn't mean you should. <laughs> um, and so to shed some light on this question, we have two incredible guests who have deep knowledge designing in-game economies. They come from the Web2 world, but they are building a business in Web3, thinking through what does it mean to build you know, game economies, whether they be open or closed. And so our first guest here is Vader. We are joined by hopefully a, a positive force. Um, he uh, does game economy design and consulting through his firm Vader Research. Um, we're going to have uh, show notes that'll link out to that. And he writes on the subject uh, of Web3 Games on a very excellent Medium blog. Uh, he's also a friend of the pod. He's appeared on the show before with the other Nico. Uh, and that is, in fact, how I got to know him and reached out to him. So, Vader, it is great to have you back. Welcome to the pod. Thanks, Nico. Thanks for having us. Awesome. And our second guest is Kiefer Zhang. He works at the very appropriately named Economics Design, uh, where he also works on game economy design and consulting. He speaks regularly on the subject at conferences. I met him last week at one on Web3 Gaming. Uh, and he also writes about the subject at the Economics Design website. Again, it'll be all in the show notes. Kiefer, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to getting into it. 
All right. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do next. So we are going to dive right in. Um, I gave the long intro because I thought it was important to kind of set the scene around what are we talking about when we talk about game design and, and the economy? Uh, NFTs are, as at least I believe, what we typically talk about when we talk about digital ownership. But I actually think that there is a huge opportunity to talk about the fungible token and the, the in-game currency side of things. So let's start by kind of defining what we're talking about here with open v closed economies. So Kiefer, I'm going to go to you first. What do we actually mean when we're talking about a closed game economy? And why has that model of game economy emerged as a dominant game economy design, both in Web 2 and still to this day in, in Web 3? Yeah, so I would define a closed economy uh, is one where you're really not allowed to trade items or currency um, that are within that game economy for any kind of item or currency outside of that particular game. Um, but I'd also further break this down a little bit into some subcategories I see within closed economies that are important to understand. And so at one level, you have situations where there's no player-to-player -player trading. It might be a completely single-player game um, or it might be a multiplayer game experience, but the there's no actual peer-to-peer -peer economic interaction. Um, but then another level that I would still say is within a closed economy is where you have player-to-player uh, -player trade, um, but it's only for items and currencies that are locked within that particular economy. So we think of uh, M most MMOs are fitting in this particular subcategory. And so here you do have black markets arising. So you have uh, gold farming and gold trades, but inherently these kind of practices are not condoned by the game studio. And so it's more of breaking the rules of a closed economy rather than truly being open. And in terms of why it's been a dominant type, um, it's really, I, I think it comes down fundamentally to risk. So there's, there's really low risk to implement when you have a high level of control over your economy. And so when you're going out to a more open economy, this brings in a lot of risk on the actual implementation strategy. Oh, these are great points. And we're going to get to those uh, in a second. We're, we've got some follow-on questions going a lot deeper on both this notion of you know, not being condoned you know, by the, the game developers when you do see some of this um, uh, peer-to-peer, player-to-player trading happening. Uh, and also the notion of risk, because risk comes in many shapes and sizes and forms. And I want to definitely dive into like, what is that risk? Um, and, and how do we actually uh, think about that as a, as a game developer? Okay, great. So Hold those thoughts. We'll go deeper into those. Uh, but in the meantime, let's go to Vader here. Um, your turn. Let's talk about defining what is an open economy. Um, and you can't just say it's the opposite of a closed one. Um, what does an open economy actually mean? What, what does it enable players to do? And let's touch a little bit on what are those risks that Kiefer's you know, kind of alluding to here. What are some of those risks for a developer when they try to implement uh, an open economy? And it's, it's quite rare, so we don't have a ton of examples of uh, of, of really looking at that. But yeah, talk to us about open economies and what they mean to you. Sure. So like Kiefer explained, you know, with closed economies, there's a one-way money transfer relationship where it's a, it's a transfer from the player's pocket to the developer's pocket, but not the other way around. Um, open economies basically enable for a, a you know two-way money transfer, um, both from player to the game developer and from the game developer to the, to the player. Um, so like in an open economy, some or all in-game items, tokens, assets, NFTs could be tradable in exchange for real money. Um, so an example is like I play Diablo, 
Um, as I kill the NPC beasts, I earn the in-game currency and some loot. Um, in a closed economy, you know, I can't sell the in-game currency or loot in exchange for real money. Uh, I can either reinvest ba- them back into the game economy so that I can, you know, earn like better loot, better items, better weapons, um, or um, I just don't do anything with them. And so that that loot I earned or the tokens, they just vaporize out of the, the game economy. Um, but like if we think about a, a Vepshri Diablo, um, where like as I kill the NPC beasts, I earn the in-game currency, which is a, um, you know, ERC20 cryptocurrency token. Um, and I also earn some item loot, which are NFTs. Um, so because... Like, let's, because we assume that this Web3 Diablo is an open economy, I'm actually able to sell these tokens and NFTs in exchange for um, real money. You know, could be ETH, BTC, could be USD, uh, but I, I actually get some real monetary value. Um, so suddenly, as a player, I'm actually making real money by by just playing a game and killing killing beasts. Um, but when you think about like where does this money coming from? That's where things get pretty complicated um, because essentially the game developer has this power to print its own print and distribute its own monetary assets to the players, um, which is a very powerful, powerful um, tool. Uh, and that's what makes open economies much more complex than the closed economies because um, an open game economy has to solve problems that a, a closed economy economy has, um, but also uh, has much more, have much more parameters to balance compared to a, a single uh, closed game economy. And in terms of like what's, what's exciting about um, open economy, like where, where the opportunities are, is like um, when you think about what, what makes a game fun, uh, like part of what makes a game fun is the reward distribution mechanism. Um, like in Diablo, every time I kill a beast, you know, I earn XP, I level up, I earn maybe a better sword. Um, I feel like I'm recognized and appreciated for, for my behavior and, um, the randomness of what I can earn when I kill a beast even like makes things more spicy and more exciting. Um, now imagine that the rewards are now in, in real money or in tokens and FTs that could be, you know, converted for, for in exchange for real money. Um, things get even more exciting and spicy. Because like, like imagine uh, imagine a battle royale game where based on your survival ranking, you are actually earning real money or monetary assets. Um, you know, it's going to be higher or lower based on your survival ranking. Um, things just get much more exciting. Um, it makes like the core loop more exciting, engaging, and, and addictive. To be honest, um, additionally, like another way to look at it is. Um, you know, some, because some of these in-game NFTs are traded on the secondary markets, they can go down and up in price. And, um, the fact that they can go up in price subconsciously might convince a free to play whale that, wait, I'm not just uh, spending, you know, uh, $10,000 on buying a skin that I'm not going to be able to use outside of the game. This is actually an investment for the future. Uh, NFTs are doing well and, and you know, this game can, can be successful in the future. Um, even though that might not be very accurate, just that subconscious way of thinking might um, might enable the game developer to better engage and monetize um, players, all sorts of players, whales, uh, free-to-play players, and 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 even speculators, which we I, I think we will talk about later. Uh, but so in short, you know, open economies offer developers better tools to engage and monetize their users, but it is a double-edged sword. 
um, it, you know, a game developer can easily mess it up. And then if you mess it up, it, it will lead to player churn and a lot of money left on the table. Oh, so much to unpack there. I uh, used one of my favorite words, which is spicy. That's a term I, I use as well for uh, why we think uh, our game that we're building um, benefits from an open economy. That is, you know, we are building an open economy uh, for our game. Uh, and we think it makes it more spicy, exactly that. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're so right. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, what a great phrase. Like, it, you know, on the one hand, it, it offers something quite exciting and quite... Uh, um, an unlock essentially for lots of different player personas and different kinds of psychologies. And we're going to talk about that. We have a whole segment on player personas and how different kinds of psychologies uh, respond to, you know, the open or closed uh, economy. Um, But yeah, exciting things to dig into. We have so much, so much more there. So, okay, great. Well, thank you so much for kicking that off. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of um, take it back to the web two paradigm here um, and call out from the very top here that it is not impossible to design open economies in Web2, right? And in fact, you've already alluded to a couple of examples here uh, that I was going to bring up too, which is, you know, the Diablo auction house, uh, gold farming in, you know, uh, World of Warcraft in particular, but lots of other uh, games in the same genre. Um, I, I know Zynga Poker extremely well. Zynga Poker actually had a, even though it's a casual game, had a very similar paradigm where it's like people could buy gray market chips or entire accounts um, for a lot cheaper than than what Zynga offered <laughs> uh, in-game. And so this notion of kind of open player trading has been around, and some of it's been conscious, and some of it's been um, accidental, if you will. Uh, the conscious choices are very few. Uh, Diablo's Auction House uh, and, a, and a couple of others, but Diablo is probably the biggest example in my mind. Um, and then the kind of the accidental ones or the ones where the developer doesn't condone it, to, to use Kiefer's term, like, you know, that's frowned upon and typically you're trying to shut that down. Certainly we were playing whack-a-mole at Singa Poker when we were trying to figure out like, okay, there's this huge market in Indonesia um, that is basically selling chips for like a tenth of the cost and that's hurting our economy uh, and hurting our monetization. Right. Um, and that's part of the reason why developers don't, don't like that. Um, so tell me, talk to me, uh, maybe we go back to Kiefer on this one. Uh, Cause I think you brought up a bunch of these up here in, in your, your intro. Why is it that developers haven't embraced more openness in their economies? Like why didn't, let's talk about Diablo's auction house. Cause that's, you know, an example, I think probably most of our listeners know the best. Um, why did that not work? Why did they, because they ultimately shut it down. Um, why did that not work? What were the, the pitfalls there and how uh, could the developer have embraced it? And is there something in Web3 that uniquely makes that problem either go away or makes it easier to mitigate? Yes, yeah, so there, there are a few problems with the uh, Diablo 3 real money auction house implementation. And I want to start off by clarifying that I think this is really an implementation issue, not something that's fundamentally wrong with trying to go with an open economy. And so one of the components here. Um, is looking at how do you avoid having a situation where you're balancing retaining some value to assets in your economy. So if you have assets that are trading for real value, you want them to retain that value. You want to have some level of of, um, importance to that ownership and uh, purchase. Uh, So you want to avoid, I, I call it like a race to the bottom issue. So if you're distributing assets that have value, how do you prevent a bunch of people from coming in, um, playing the game to get all to get a huge inflation of these new assets and then pushing the price and just crushing that price. Um, but then balancing that against you have all these other players who maybe they don't want to interact with the market. Maybe they just want to play the game. They don't want to feel forced to have to buy something. And so you need to make sure that you're able to provide them with a good um, access to 
to a regular progression through the gameplay without being too pushy on, on a monetization pinch. And the, with the Diablo strategy, they, they went kind of all in on the, the real money component. And, and players felt that push of uh, there's, there's such a limitation on the ability to get the items that you really need to go far in the game um, that they, they were not properly catered to. And so here you can, you can have an open economy, but it doesn't mean that you have to go all or nothing in having uh, the implementation for your NFTs. So you can have, uh, it, taking that to the Web3 context, um, or just generalizing tradable versus non-tradable. You could have some portion of assets that are, that are tradable. And so this is distributed based on what do you think the real demand is from players that want to purchase these to have some progression but then also having a, a class of equivalent non-tradable assets where since they're non-tradable, you don't have to care about the overall inflation rate. You can look at the, the distribution rate per individual user to tailor that individual gaming experience so that they don't feel left out um, when you're implementing this more open economy. Um, then you also want to look at what happens when you have the ability to buy power. Uh, in the game. So specifically with Diablo, we're talking about um, a, an open economy that they're going with a, a route where uh, where the tradable assets have utility, which is which is a risky strategy It's uh, versus just a, co a tradable cosmetic route. Um, and so you have to think about what, what are the implications when you allow that? Um, this brings in the big like, pay to win um, component and also thinking about how do you do this without undermining the core loop of the game? Uh, you don't want people to be able to skirt too much of the content or mess up the content pacing. And so making sure that you're bringing in components where you're balancing the ability to uh, purchase these advantages uh, or, or powerful assets while retaining requirements of continuing to go through kind of in, in Diablo's case, kind of the grindy core loop um, of leveling up uh, in order to uh, properly utilize these assets and not ruin the game experience. Vader, a couple of things are, you know, this notion of uh, the very beginning, actually, where, where Kiefer started was, you know, it wasn't necessarily that the problem was the open economy, per se. It was the implementation problem. Um, you know, implementation is everything, of course. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, you've got to have a good core concept, a good thesis, you know, and obviously a good core loop, a good game design. And then the implementation piece is critical. Um, I, I'm actually not privy to the original design decisions that the you know Diablo 3 team made regarding the auction house but to me it always struck uh, me as something that was not an afterthought but it was something that they put in later um, not at the very beginning and I wonder how much of implementation is forethought and planning at the very beginning stages of, of putting an open economy together would love to hear your thoughts on that uh, I know you've taken a lot of looks at web3 games existing web3 games um, and kind of thought through and I've, I think I've heard you speak on this and certainly I've seen you write on this this topic where it's like if you're designing the economy from the ground up you got to kind of either design it from as a closed economy or as an open economy um, and you kind of got to go down one now obviously you don't have to go all in to Kiefer's point you don't have to embrace everything that that particular paradigm requires you air quotes requires you to, to adopt um, but at the same time it would probably be a better play to think about, okay, we're going to have an open economy. What are the problems? How do we actually design this from the ground up more sustainably? Sustainability, I think, is going to be a big theme for a lot of what we talk about here. So anyway, long question, but but yeah, the, the, the idea that like 
it's not a open economy is not a problem per se. It's it's really how we implement them. And you really probably should be thinking about it from the very beginning when you're actually designing your entire game economy. Yeah, 100% agreed. Um, It's because if you make some important architectural mistakes early on, there's just, there's either no way changing those decisions or it's going to be very painful. Um, An example is like, which assets do you make tradable? Um, what are their tradable? Are they fixed in supply or variable? Um, like a great example is, you know, Axie land, right? Um, when they were selling the land, I don't know. Um, I don't know how, how sure they were regarding the land utility. Um, and so there were a lot of narrative baked into the land as if the landowners were going to get a lot of, you know, a, a good amount of yields and, and increase in price. Um, but and and at some point when they actually decided to and so the land was fixed in supply, then they 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 realized that wait the land is going to be a core piece for the overall land gameplay. So if you make it fixed in supply, then it's going to become um, too expensive uh, for for others, and because it's going to become expensive, it's just going to um, slow down the growth. Um, so why don't we either you know have infinite land or or um, increase the the number of land. Uh, so that just pissed off the community uh, straightforward, right? Because if that was the case, why would the, the people spend the money to buy the land? Uh, so I think um, making, getting the right architectural design early on, um, like having a plan on when you're going to sell the token, when you're going to sell the NFTs, what utility would these NFTs have? And even like without having, um, you don't need to think very detailed about the utility, but just think about whether, like, if I own this NFT, am I able to uh, generate, uh, create new assets like tokens or other NFTs um, over, you know, six months, 12 months? And what level of, you know, skill, randomness, time would be required for that? Even like doing that overall uh, simple design on like something like uh, machinations or Excel, would that least give an idea on, on, on the architecture? So I I would agree with like Kiefer that it's pretty important to have that model, and and I would agree that like um, probably the answer is between open and closed economy, where um, having an open economy with with a lot of uh, closed economy measures, a bit similar to almost like you know more socialist uh, countries. Got it. And since you brought up Axia, I think you know this is a great place to to talk about that. Obviously, they're the eight hundred pound you know, Web3 open economy uh, gorilla in the room. Um, and so I always preface this statement with a, I have a lot of love for the Sky Mavis team. Um, they are pioneers in many ways. They have done incredible work uh, kind of paving the way and opened up a path for, you know, Web3 developers to to say, hey, like there's, you know, there's something really interesting here um, and we should, you know, explore that further. But we have to use the word Ponzinomics here. Um, not because Sky Mavis or Axie Infinity design, like, deliberately designed their game th- that way. I, I don't think so, at least. Um, certainly, whenever they've spoken on the topic, that's not something they say, like, hey, we were looking to create this kind of pyramid-shaped scheme. But uh, but that's what ended up happening, um, you know, with their dual token structure, um, you know, AXS, Axios, and, 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 and SLP, and with SLP, of course, being the, the fungible token in their economy. Um, what... What went wrong? <laughs> I know there's been, we don't have to do a full deep dive on this. There's been plenty of podcasts and, and papers on this topic, but just at a very high level, what went wrong in your opinion um, 
with that particular model. Obviously, they're still very much around and they've got lots of different game designs coming and they're you know, kind of pivoting into publishing uh, titles as well. But what went wrong with the original Axiom model? How did that dual token model end up uh, kind of collapsing on itself uh, at, at a very high level? What, why don't we start with you, Vader, actually, on this one? Because I know you've looked at this pretty deeply and I'm sure you have as well, Kiefer, but uh, I just know that I've read, read some of Vader's stuff on this. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, the, the short answer is the outflows were more than the inflows. Um, and to, to explain that, like if I buy an Axie NFT, I can actually earn back my money in say 30 days, 60 days. Um, and the axes are permanent. So I can earn SLP infinitely. Um, but you know, when you think about where, where the, the, those SLP, the tokens are coming from, um, the Sky Mavis Axie Infinity was minting them. Um, so in a sense, it was by design, it was like, like a, a, a Ponzi. Um, and, and the growth just made it, uh, worse and worse, to be honest. Um, but, you know, is it the fault of the dual token economy? It's, it's actually not. It's more about, like, if we think about this, um, if I'm able to earn back my upfront Axie investment in 60 days by earning SLP, you know, that is unsustainable. But if I'm earning my Axie, let's, let's assume that, um, Axies die after one year, right? It's a temporary asset. Um, and I can earn back my, um, X investment, upfront investment, only if I earn 50% of the, or like more than 50, 51% of the matches that I played over a year, um, then someone else actually loses, right? So there's this more like zero sum game element. Um, so it's not the fault of dual token economy. It's, it's, it's the fault of the overall design. And I didn't want to get into the, the weeds of the design, not to get too technical, but that's like the short answer. Yeah, no, and, and that's exactly what I was looking for, you know, like at a high level, what went wrong. And it was this notion of sustainability. And I think sustainability is a, is a, you know, again, it's a theme we will come back to over and over again. But what you gave one concrete example of how they could have made that economy design more sustainable, like not the fault of the dual token economy, but the fault of, you know, that, hey, it's just not sustainable to expect everybody to make a return in 30, 60 days or whatever the, those numbers are. Uh, zero sum game, another term here, which I think is really interesting. Um, what are other ways, uh, go to Kiefer on this one, like what are other ways that you could take an open economy and make it more sustainable? Is it just a case of slowing down progress or, you know, making the pinches a bit harder? Or is it about making it a zero-sum game? Um, I think the word, you used the word socialist at one point. Uh, we're going to get into price controls versus free market in a second, actually. Um, I'm very curious to hear how can you take, tactically speaking, practically speaking, as a game designer, what do you do to make your open economy more sustainable over the long term? Yeah, so one component of this is making sure that you have proper control over inflation of all assets that you want to have value in your economy. Um, Axie did fairly poor job of this. Of They controlled the inflation of assets at a player level, but with no control over the number of players, effectively, they had no control over the overall inflation level of, uh, of their utility token. Um, it's also really important to consider where is the value injected into your economy? Um, and so you can think this could be a time for money trade-off, could be a status for money trade-off, depending on how, uh, how accepting your audience is of pay-to-win components, could be a power for money trade-off. But should not be focusing on a money for many trade-off. Like 
the primary motivation for a lot of that Axie spending was uh, buying just for the just with the expectation that you're going to get additional financial rewards later. And that's not a sustainable uh, motivation to rely on to, to prop up this economy. Um, you want to make sure that you have a strong core loop that's not reliant on these financial incentives. So you, you can do a test on this, just a, a kind of rule of thumb test. Of, if you strip out all the Web3 components, all the financial incentives, and look at what remains of it and think about how you would try to monetize that, like Stepin is another example that comes up a lot. If you think about, if you take out any sort of financial rewards there, can you still expect people to be buying those shoes? Like there's no real reason for them to. Uh, you'd have to adapt to a very different type of monetization strategy. And so what that tells you is that the only reason people are buying those is because they're expecting a financial reward and they're expecting to get more money out than what's going in. And that is going to give you that Ponzi-nomic structure. Um, and then last thing I'll point out on this is that you really need to think about having strong sinks for your assets, again, that are not financial focused, um, but understanding that different sinks are going to be applicable to different types of players. And I'm sure we'll get into that more when we talk about player personas. Player motivations. Uh, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, you're obviously heavily touching on here, which is, you know, a lot of Web3 existing games were this play to earn meta um, where people are playing for financial reward and that ultimately isn't sustainable. You know, games are meant to be fun. They're not meant to be jobs. If they were jobs, they wouldn't be games, right? <laughs> so, you know, it kind of, uh, it's, it's a circular argument in many ways, but but that to me is, is at its core, you know, as a game developer, you're trying to make a game that people want to play regardless of whether it costs money or, or you know, you make money, right? Um, and so uh, player motivations, there are many of these, right? And Kiefer, you just touched on time for money, status for money, power for money. There's lots of these kinds of, and these are essentially the sinks, right? Like you are expecting players to play, put in money into the ecosystem. And then whoever is extracting value from the ecosystem is hopefully doing so in a sustainable manner so that, you know, the people who just, just want to play the game are just playing the game and they're doing what you do in Web 2, you know, free-to-play games where you're choosing to spend money for entertainment value, not because you have any expectation of, of making that money back. What are, what are some other player motivations that you can tap into here? And, and maybe we're bleeding a little bit into the player personas piece here because... Um, so we 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 had Quinn uh, Quinn Campbell, who's the VP of Growth from Sky Mavis, on uh, on the pod a couple of episodes ago, and uh, he, he had written about and we talked to him about they have eleven personas that they've identified in Axiom, and those eleven personas only half of them actually play the game, and the other half are part of the ecosystem, but per Quinn are extremely valuable. You know, um, they don't necessarily have to play the game. They don't necessarily even have to provide liquidity, but some of them are just part of the ecosystem because they're excited about the DAO or they're excited about staking or they're excited about uh, social status. Um, Long-winded question to get to the notion of what can open economy game devs do to, to tap into some of these motivations that actually do create a more sustainable ecosystem, more sustainable game design, a more sustainable economy. Um, that is different in Web 2, or different to Web 2, I should say. And maybe jump to Vader on this one. It's a big question. <laughs> nice. Um, no, step one, how do, you, how do you get a player's money out of his pocket to the treasury? And step two, when, when as a game developer, you're rewarding tokens for a specific activity or NFTs, how do you make the player reinvest those earnings back into the game economy? 
Um, and and you know, Kiefer touched upon uh, touched up uh, touched on the, the the points about like you know spending for time, pay to win, um, and I agree with those. Um, I think like so, like likely players would spend on for the experience, right? If they enjoy the game, they might spend on experience. And this can be, you know, um, like Clash of Clans game, they want to just uh, skip waiting. Um, maybe it could be like more of a pay-to-win element just because they enjoy winning. Not not maybe, not because they actually want to earn more, but they just enjoy winning. Um, and so these are like, I think, a bit more traditional free-to-play spending motivations. Uh, I think what, what Fabtree Open Economy can bring is... Um, this is like almost like wagering type model where um, as a as a player you actually spend you want to earn money from the game yes I mean it's it's not good for the economy and we've seen this with Axie um, but if you design the economy in a way that you actually convert those who are spending money to earn more money into um, deflationary players for the economy because they're actually the ones financing the ones, um, who are earning, right? And and there needs to be a lot of like, you know, um, you got to tap on the irrational part of the player's brain to to nudge them um, to make these investment and spending decisions. We're trying to tap into some of these in our game, some of these psychologies where, uh, you, you know, you may not actually play the, the air quotes core game, um, but you are playing the game in a different kind of way. So, in, in our game, it's the notion of uh, an owner class where you're actually managing a record label or venues. And you may not be playing like the music management sim, but you're actually playing the game and you're a valuable component of it because you're, you want status, you want visibility. Um, you know, we're building in the Solana ecosystem and there's a, there's a, a very famous uh, Solana uh, persona, if you will, influencer called Saul Big Brain. And uh, he's really into games and invests in a lot of games. And he's, he's a, uh, he's an investor and player uh, in a game called Phono Finish Game, which is a horse racing game. And he doesn't actually race the horses, but he owns a stable. And in that stable, he owns a bunch of horses. And those horses are actually managed by real human beings that he employs to manage those horses. And that, to me, is a great example of what Web3 enables. It enables players of very different kinds who do have financial motivations and they may not have financial motivations to earn, but they actually have so much money, like they're so crypto rich or so you know, just rich in general, that they derive pleasure and entertainment value from being an owner class in this ecosystem and from being seen to be these really, you know, like, hey, I'm this guy, like, here's who I am. I am an owner class and there can't be that many of those. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how many of those those players, that's really what I was trying to get at with you, Vader. Like how many of those types of different classes of players can you tap into? Um, again, Axios identified 11 personas of which only half are, are players. Um, I bet you there's a whole bunch more that are enabled through open economies in Web3, not because of the financial earning motivation, but because there's more spiciness at play, right? Like because there's real money at stake. Like your point, Vader, was like very well taken. Wagering model. There's a wagering model. Like I'm almost like betting, but betting can win or lose, right? Whereas I think with the Axia model kind of uh, fell out on its face because you could never really lose. Or the expectation was that, it, you know, price always go up, right? And so if I play, I will always earn more as long as there's more players coming in. But wagering is interesting because wagering isn't always going up. It's not an expectation that I earn on this. There's an expectation I could also lose. And so I wonder 
if you put that lens on Web3 and an open economy, what kinds of player personas beyond the wagering types, beyond the owner class, can you tap into um, that are still players and still valuable to the ecosystem, but are not trying to extract value from the game? Does that make sense? Maybe Kiefer, jump to you on that one. Yeah, and so... I see the real value add here from Web3 is it's creating this new type of building block. And that's enabling the the monetization of the time versus money trade-off in a way that can be used outside of just monetization solely by the studio. And so you can take that building block and be very creative in how you implement it. And so... I'll, I'll go back to, to kind of two personas I like, like business owners and workers, but I want to maybe put a different lens on how these are interpreted and how I see them happening in the future here. And so on the business owner side, I see this not just in a sense where you're an NFT holder, where you passively hold an asset and kind of capture revenue from other people's activity, but more so to the point where you're running a really competitive business and you're trying to add value um, with having an important role in the economy. And so it's not that people are, are mindlessly playing the game and revenue is flowing to you. It's you have found a specific niche inside of this complex economy, and you are running a business where you have to think of what is the best strategy for me to make money in this context by providing value to someone. You are providing real value to someone else in the economy. Someone else is making a time versus money trade-off. And that is fundamentally the core value that's funding the ability for you to do this. And it takes effort. You're running a real business. Um, and then that enables the, the second persona of, a com- of like the complex worker here. And so this is not the P2E play-to-earn sense that we've seen in this last wave of games, where it's just play the simple repetitive game purely based on participation that you're getting some sort of financial output but you are putting actual time um, and being paid based on this time versus money trade-off and it's requiring actual skill. And to, to contextualize this a little bit more, uh, we could look at, say, like Star Atlas or that type of game in general where you have uh, a very complex uh, player-to-player economy, space, think uh, space strategy, um, where there could be, you could be running a company or running a business where you're trying to make a certain type of ship and what's fundamentally funding this is that there are a lot of players that they just want a ship to go off and blow people up. They don't want to go through the entire process of creating that ship. But there's a business opportunity there for the person that can figure out what is the optimal strategy for collecting those resources, the perfect tr- uh, risk-adjusted trade route to get those resources to where you can craft it and make that ship, and collecting the right people who have the perfect skill set to do this in the most efficient way possible. And then for the workers, um, they're participating in that supply chain. Um, And so they could be really good at finding places to mine, have a high crafting skill, or even something that I find really interesting is you could have a skill that has nothing to do, at least directly to do with that, that actual process. Like you could be a really good fighter, but since you might have this kind of trade route, if you need to transport these resources, there's demand in this economy to hire someone who's really good at fighting to protect that. So they're fitting into this complex economy, leveraging their skills and earning real value as a legitimate job in the metaverse. I love that. That is very, very close to, to our vision um, of, of having these, you know, uh, skilled 
players who occupy specific niches in the ecosystem and that, you know, the game is complex enough and hopefully fun complex enough where players have to find, like they have to choose where they're going to spend their time because they can't spend their time everywhere. And I think that's, that's a really interesting aspect. You, You know, web two games, you are typically playing them, at least most games, you're typically playing them by yourself. And even if it's a social game, you're all playing the same game, right? Like you're all playing, okay, I'm like competing on all these aspects against all these other players. Um, and I think where Web3 gets interesting is you do get this, this specialization. It's like running a business. Like a lot of these terms ring very true to me where you got to put in skill. Um, and if you're putting in the right amount of skill and providing the right amount of value to somebody else, then you can earn. But then there are going to be some players who just want to play and just want to pay to skip the, you know, all of that, all of that, that part of it. So it rings very, very true to me. Um, but that brings me to game balancing because game balancing it's hard at the best of times, and I think you've both already touched on this, but when you have an open economy, it's it's that much harder because it's you can't probably anticipate what different player personas you're going to have. How many of these specialized, skilled owner types are you going to have? How many workers, specialized workers are you going to have? How many, um, you know, what percentage is, is going to be extractive versus, uh, you know, sinks into the economy? Um, how do you how how do you guys again you, you do this for a living um, how do you guys advise your clients and how do you think about the game balancing when you have an open economy um, and does it matter if it's a single token model dual token model triple token model um, you know uh, open with a mix of closed or closed with a mix of open um, how do you go about balancing a game where there is the expectation that some amount of the economy flows out. Um, and doesn't stay part of that ecosystem forever, which of course is still hard to design and hard to balance, but it's a heck of a lot easier than if you're have an expectation that some percentage is going to flow out and it's going to presumably depend on how many players you have at any given time. Um, and of course the player mix. So Vader, let's go to you on that. Um, Um, I mean, first of all, you got to model out if you are having net outflows, right? Um, and you got to make some assumptions, like for example, you know, um, we said that Axie was unsustainable because outflows were more than the inflows. Um, now, in my opinion, a game in the initial months could have some net outflows. So the outflows can be more than the inflows. And it's a bit like subsidizing, um, you know, user growth. It's a bit like, you know, Uber offering free rides or discounted rides to to acquire and engage users. Um once you have an idea of uh, the token allocation, and this can be based on, uh, and we're talking about like the community token rewards, you can make you know assumptions based on maybe the daily active users, maybe the number of uh, NFT holders, maybe I don't know number of matches played per per energy per per NFT. Um, once you have that, um, then what is like your main monetization slash business model. You know, if if your main monetization comes from secondary fees, um, so like royalty fees, like a um, CCG or, or, or um, you know, collectible type game, then you might want to constantly change the meta so that you want to constantly incentivize players to trade and buy new, new NFTs. Um, while doing that, um, you have to be very careful about um, how and when you nerf or buff uh, a, a character as well. Just because, you know, in a closed economy, you, you nerf and buff a card or, or, or a gun or any item, um, 
doesn't make a huge difference. Um, but in an open economy, you're constantly going to like, um, you know, change the price because there's going to be a market reaction to that. People are going to either sell or buy those items. Uh, so all those parameters should be considered at whole. Um, and also, you know, um, like we're talking about the token rewards very financially and mathematically, but, um, how does, how does, how does it going to, um, affect the player's experience, you know? Okay, so we're rewarding more tokens in the initial months to attract more users. But if a player is uh, was earning more more tokens in the initial months and now is earning less tokens, is that going to affect his experience, his you know value of of being recognized? Um, so all these stuff are like additional parameters that should be monitored when when you're um, balancing a, a game design. And I also want to like um, add a few points to to the, the previous um, comments that like Kiefer made. Um, so like I definitely agree that you know we have these new player types and they specialize in specific areas and they're because they're specialized in specific areas, um, people they have some value and people are demanding and they're willing to pay for that that those services. Um, I think the problem is that like Something like let's say breeding in Axie, right? Um, in Axie as well, there were some people who were good with data and had some, you know, models that they could optimize. They could tell you which two Axie parents would make the best Axie baby when you breed. Um, like when when that is done by um, an an irrational player who doesn't do extreme amount of calculations like that is okay because you want the player to um, not to make the perfect choices for the for the overall economy but when is when that is done by um, you know a hedge fund that employs data scientists and, and finance guys um, then as the economy you end up giving too much of your value to to um, participants like a hedge fund, who might not give back that much because they ju- they're just there to extract um, and they're not adding much value to the to the game economy. One of the things that I've spoken to you about, Vader, is uh, the the idea. Uh, you know, even in Web two, you have you know uh, lead economists, uh, for, especially for games that have complex economies. But that to me strikes uh, as even more important in Web three. Uh, you know, the notion of having a central banker essentially managing the inflows and the outflows, uh, setting the exchange rate. Um, you know, maybe imposing some kind of restrictions on how much you know can flow out, how much can flow in. On, on any given day or any given time period, any epoch or you know season or what have you, um, and those are obviously there's a lot of considerations there. Um, how do you think about in an open economy, an open Web three economy? What is that role of the central banker? Um, how can they manage the economy in a way that again sustainability a big theme that that remains sustainable without annoying the players? <laughs> you know, because the notion of when you own something and it's mine. And that is, is what we're saying to Web3 players. We're saying, hey, you own the assets or you, lo- you know, have some at least some residual economic value in the game that you're playing. Um, it's very hard to take something away. You know, we talked about nerfing and, and uh, buffing. Um, buffing is easy. You can always add things. It's like, great, I have more you know, value to this thing, more utility, more power, more status, whatever that something is. But when you nerf something and you've owned it for a while, you're not going to feel great about that. And so... What is that role of the central banker or the kind of 
the, the lead economist, if you will, of a Web3 open economy game, how can they most effectively manage the expectations of players on buffing and nerfing inflows and outflows, setting limits? Uh, how much is really possible? Uh, should it be a complete free market, free for all? Like, hey, we're libertarians, you know, let the, the system decide for itself? Or does there need to be some level of, of central control, having this banker? And what are the limits on what they can actually do um, on a day-to-day basis to manage that sustainable economy? Yeah, I'd uh, love to jump in on this. So when we're talking about this, you can have control or you, you can you can do a good job of setting this up in the initial stage, as well as having ongoing balancing and management. And so at the early stage here, it's really about doing a good job of setting up the fundamental incentives uh, to get people to act in the way you want for each specific asset. And when, when people talk about tokens, they, they kind of say this in a general sense, but to get more specific here, token tokens is a, is a technology. You can have vastly different types of assets. And often I split this as, uh, on one side, you could have a currency. It's meant to be a medium of exchange in the economy. Um, think of it like as the equivalent to traditional fiat currency that you have in a country. And then on the very other end here, you have something that's meant to accrue value, almost equity-like. This is the kind of token that gets sold to investors. Um, and so with the, the medium of exchange currency, you want people to spend it. You want price stability. Uh, it should be net on net, slightly inflationary. And then contrasting to that, like a value accrual asset, you want people to hold it, it should be a little bit net deflationary, and you'd expect there to be price appreciation. There are investors who, who, ha- who definitely have that expectation. Um, and so should understand uh, first off, I think a, a lot of designers, they don't even necessarily realize that this is a split to be aware of. If you try to combine these into one asset, it's you're going to kind of have a conflicting incentives that will mean that you fail in these goals. So first, you got to determine what is the goal that you have for these for this asset between those general areas. Um, and then once you have that in place, figure you set the initial incentives. So um, how are you setting the uh, faucets and sinks for that asset to make it either net inflationary or net deflationary. Um, If you have a fixed supply versus a variable supply, um, that'll affect people's expectations around uh, whether they're going to hold or spend as well as the the net inflation or deflation rate. Um, And so that's setting up the initial expectations. Uh, But then there's the ongoing balancing uh, component and where this really does you really do take in these uh, central bank kind of role as uh, as someone at, at the at a game studio, or if you give some of that control over to maybe an elected council by the DAO if you want to decentralize more. Um, but on an ongoing basis, then uh, I think it's very important to if you are focusing on that currency type of asset, um, because if you have if price stability fails. Um, like if the price goes up, then people are reluctant to spend it because, oh, wow, I could I can make money if I keep holding this. Why would I want to spend it? That's going to be problematic for your economy. Also, if it goes down, it fails as a store of value. So you're able. So then you would want to start using some tools like uh, you can have reserves in place that you can use to support the price on the low end. You can use inflation or setting price ceilings to uh, create limits on the high end. 
Um, and you can even do, you can even pull directly from a, a, the central banking uh, playbook of pointing out concepts like forward guidance of saying, this is what I'm going to do in the future. And if you set that expectation well enough and the players trust that you'll follow through, you might not even have to take action because the market will correct uh, on your behalf because you set that expectations. And for the, the value accrual or equity type assets, I'd say it's slightly less important, but it's still beneficial to do these kind of ongoing activities. Uh, if you want to do something like tweaking the faucets and sinks to make it more net deflationary to switch people uh, to help with that value accrual asset and realign those incentives. Are you advocating for a dual token economy here or am I reading it too simply here? Because you were talking about the notion of having you know, a utility token essentially with a price stability with slight inflation. That to me implies, you know, an inflationary gameplay token that, you know, is used for your day-to-day activity. And then you, something like an, more of an equity token, if you will, that has price appreciation um, with a slight deflationary pressure that allows people to get that kind of more rarely as a reward and note that like, hey, this is something that we're looking to hold. That is very similar to the Axia AXS SLP model, dual token model. Am I being too simplistic here? Am I reading in that, that that's something you're advocating I, for? Or is, is there a lot more nuance to it? I'm sure there's a lot more nuance to it. Yeah, definitely more <laughs> nuanced to it. Um, I think we, people see the dual token model, and but they're not going the level below to breaking out what is the fundamental value accrual versus medium of exchange components. Because you can have these, these don't have to be tradable assets. You could have a, a medium of exchange be a soft currency that's off-chain. You can have multiple on-chain currencies if you want, but just make sure that you understand um the fundamental reason that you have each of them in the economy. And the, the main warning is don't combine the medium of exchange and value accrual type of uh, attributes into the same asset. Um, like if you try to sell something, sell a, a medium of exchange token to investors, they're going to expect the price to go up. And that is directly conflicting with your goal of price stability. Vader, I'm going to jump to you on this one. I want to dig a little bit deeper on this because I know you have thoughts on last time we spoke uh, or a while, one of the last times we spoke, you were not necessarily convinced by the dual token model. And I think one of the things you were saying, well, you could probably get by with just a single token. Um, so would love to hear your thoughts on how Kiefer's thinking about uh, this notion of you know medium of exchange token and value accrual token. Of course, you can have lots more in there in the mix. I mean, your typical Web2 games have usually have at least five or six or seven or eight or 10 different currencies, if you will, right? But of course, they're all in a closed economy and there's no expectation of value extraction. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, the single token model uh, or, or dual token model or any, any number of tokens model? <laughs> um, how are you thinking about this notion of medium exchange versus value accrual? Sure, sure. So this is one very area where Kiefer and I have different different thoughts on. Um, so. Value accrual is definitely a very strong utility. And when you think about the Axis dual token, like the both SLP and um, AXS, they're sort of both, val- they both have value accrual features, meaning, you know, X percentage of breeding fees go to SLP and is burned or sorry, are paid in SLP and burned. The one minus X point percent of the, the breeding fees are paid in AXS and, and um, they're, they're, they're burned or they go to the treasury. Um, and value accrual sometimes happens, you know, among, you know, token, NFT, equity entity. Um, but basically it reflects that, look, if this underlying business is going to be successful in the future, 
um, the token NFT or entity attached to this business is going to go up in price. So it has some um, speculative value baked in because of this value accrual uh, future. Now, in the medium of exchange um, future, so like in my opinion, um, medium of exchange future uh, utility makes sense for real world economies, for currencies. You know, it makes sense for um, every every country to have its own currency um, because, you know, that's what is used to pay for the groceries and, and for, for um, people that you're working with. Um, but with... And it, it also makes sense for the Web3 games and closed economies. But with Web3 games, what I think is that, um, you know, let's say I'm, I'm playing Shrapnel or, or Blast Rail, like any, any, any game or Block Stars. Um, there's a high percentage that I am not going to hold on the utility currency or the governance token. Um, if I, if I believe in the future of the game, you know, I'm going to hold on the governance token because I'm actually making a speculative investment. Um, but otherwise, um, I'm probably going to go back to my own local currency or maybe USD or maybe ETH if I'm, if I'm believing in the future of, um, Ethereum. Um, and only at the point of a transaction, say when I'm buying an NFT or when I have to pay for energy breeding, I'm going to convert that, that USD or ETH into that game's token. And I know that there are like people, there are some um, teams working on software to make this, <clears throat> you know, point of sale transaction, this exchange even more easier so that, um, you know, you can plug in your credit card or just, just, um, crypto wallet and, and immediately your, um, you, whatever currency you want is exchanged and you can pay for, for those goods. Um, so in that sense, the medium of exchange future kind of loses its its um, utility. But that said, when you think about <clears throat> when you think about what you're using the this token to purchase, um, it's actually NFTs in the game, and those NFTs sh- maybe should have some price stability um, rather than so maybe they should sort of have not the medium of exchange utility, but more like a store of value utility. So that um, no matter what happens to Bitcoin or or the game game speculative value accrual token price, those NFTs should trade in a specific range, um, which is a very communistic way to way to design an economy because it might sound simple, but it's actually like you're basically almost designing an algorithmic stablecoin from an NFT, um, and and there are some like problems with that. Um, in addition to, you know, it being the pegged, like, like in the Luna case, you also like, how do you decide on the price? So for example, let's say you have a shotgun and you have a sniper. Um, like what should the, the price range be for the shotgun? You know, it should be $2, 250 3 Y3. Um, what should it be for the sniper? What if, what if the demand is actually more than, um, $2 or less than $2? So you're actually like, um, Either either you're losing money as the game from your own pocket to, to to keep that that range, or you're having the player lose money. Um, so so uh, that had that also has its own problems. Re- response to that one. Um, so I think looking at 
Axie as a reference is maybe not the best mental model for this. I think a an example that I think is much more relevant for thinking about the usefulness of a medium exchange currency is Second Life. So Second Life is a metaverse that's been around since 2003. And their Linden dollar, it's it <laughs> predates Bitcoin. It's not a cryptocurrency, but it you can trade it for dollars. It is an open economy. Um, and so with uh, with Linden dollars, it's they've they have a model where they've essentially enforced a price window. So it will trade between roughly a certain range, and they're taking um, they're they're using central bank strategies to to create this constrained pricing range. Um, but it is crucially not a stable coin. So they didn't just say we're just going to use dollars, or we're just going to directly peg one to one to U.S. dollars, uh, because there's benefits to having. A, I, I call it maybe like a semi-stable coin. Of it's enough, it's enough stability that there's that users feel comfortable holding it, and so they don't feel like there's there's friction or they need to trade back and forth every time. Like they're fine holding it for a little bit, but they they still retained inflation as a tool. And so inflation, obviously, like we've used the term a double-edged sword. Like you have to be very careful, but there there's a reason uh, it's useful and why why governments they're not all just on like the gold standard. There's benefits to having that in your toolbox to be able to stimulate growth, um, either when you're bootstrapping or in a down period or just any time you need to give kind of an additional incentive boost in a very careful way. And having inflation as a tool with a very carefully designed medium of exchange token could be the thing that gives you an edge over your competition that's only using a stable coin. Yeah, I absolutely love geeking out on this stuff. And this is the reason... I'm building in Web3 is because there is so much opportunity and there's no clear right path forward. There's just a lot of experimentation and fun stuff you can try as a game designer, as a game developer, and not all of it's going to work, um, but some of it will, and some of it will open up brand new use cases and different player personas and um, really exciting new game designs and economies. So um, in the interest of time, we're going to have to, I would have loved to go back and forth on this because this is actually an area that I'm personally particularly excited and interested in, uh, you know, this notion of how do you manage your game economy, both setting it up and then, you know, on a day-to-day basis, what tools do you have in your toolkit? Like, are you a central banker? Is it a completely libertarian free market? Are you, uh, you know, enforcing some version of communism? Like, you can go, you can go in a lot of different directions here. Um, but a quick question to follow up with both of you guys here, as exciting as this is to, to me and to us, and I think hopefully to our listeners who are, you know, game industry professionals who are looking at this space, um, how how much does the average gamer care? Um, I mean, a lot of this is obviously going to happen under the hood. Um, and so, you know, it's it's more or less invisible to the player. But some of these things are, are going to bubble up to the surface, right? They're going to notice inflation. They're going to notice these central bank forward-looking statements, if that's what you're doing as a game developer. Um, these are things that a lot of game devs and, and economists will geek out by. Um, but at the same time, your average gamer that we're trying to onboard from Web 2 into to Web 3 gaming are not necessarily going to care about. So how important is this really as you're thinking about your games? It's very interesting as an uh, academic exercise and it's exciting as a game developer to experiment with these things. But how much does this actually bubble up to the surface for the gamer themselves? How much do they care? Yeah, so it, it affects the player experience. Um, it, it depends on how, how dire the, the situation is. Um, like we, we've seen in past games, like you look at Diablo 2, where if you they they messed up their their currency, they had, gold was uh, very deflationary. You couldn't they had limits on how much you could hold. It just had a lot of components that made it a very poor currency. So the community has to jump over to 
to Stones of Jordan. And then there was an exploit with that. And then that became an unusable currency. And they had to, uh, to jump over to runes. And so you have, um, it impacts the experience of, of how players are, are interacting with the economy. Um, and also the incentives that you set impact how people are going to, um, uh, what, what they're going to do, whether they, they feel like they need to spend a lot or if they should be holding. So they, they react to the incentives that you set. Yeah, I think um, how much does the average gamer care? I think, you know, it depends on the game genre as well. Like, because, okay, so a gamer already has to make a lot of decisions, right? They, has, they have to optimize with, with maybe the, if it's a shooter game, with, with the mouse and the keyboard, if it's like a strategy game with making decisions. Um, and when you add financial elements as well, they now need to think about more parameters because there's money at the stake. Um, so, like, I think maybe strategy, strategy games, some more like AAA core games, people might enjoy geeking on these decisions, thinking about these decisions. Um, but the casual game players probably won't care about this, right? The, the average Candy Crush player won't care about it. But um, if you add a simple, um, almost like a real money game element to Candy Crush, and if they know that they're actually competing with another player, um, and based on their performance, they're gonna um, like win. I don't know, one dollar or two dollars. Um, that might affect their engagement. So I think um, the 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 complexity of the economy should also be based on the average gamer of a specific game genre. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think there there's going to be innovation in game economies for all the way from like the most core niche type of game where people literally spend hours and months and years leveling up all the way to the casual gamer. There are going to be opportunities, I think, for doing interesting things with those game economies that'll be more or less complex, more or less uh, financialized, uh, more or less tokenized um, across the board. So um, that's my prediction, at least. <laughs> um, uh, so we're going to wrap it up there. Um, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation. Uh, I have loved geeking out on some of these topics with, with you guys. Um, there's obviously a lot that goes under the hood into these games, into any game. But uh, you know, with Web3 games and open economies, I think it just makes it that much more complicated. Um, to me, in a good way, in a fun way, as a challenging uh, exercise. But um, yeah, we will see what game developers do in the coming months and years as we take some of these technology. I mean, I think, Kiefer, I think you call them building blocks. Um, yeah, there's, they're building blocks, right? Like blockchain technologies is a building block. You know, a tokenized economy, it's a building block. NFTs, digital ownership is a building block. All of these things come together in different ways. There's no one size fits all. So um, thank you so much, Vader and, and Kiefer, for, for coming on the pod today. Um, it's been a Real pleasure, and you guys are welcome back anytime. Thanks for having us. It was really fun. Thanks. That was awesome. And also a big thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, we'll be back next week with more interviews, more insights, and more analysis from the weird and wonderful world of Web3. So until next time, friends, stay crypto curious and feel free to send questions, guest recommendations, and comments to me. My email is nico at novic.co, and you can find me on Twitter at NicoTheFin, DMs always open. Until next time.